Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey, this is Jen Rubin and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. A lot going on this week. It's Tuesday, and the House and Senate leadership met at the White House to talk about the shutdown that is looming once again, and also to talk about the border. Now, the way it was described by the House minority leader and the House majority leader, both Democrats, was very intense, very productive. In other words, they put the screws on Mike Johnson, what are you doing? Are you going to have a shutdown? Are you really going to sink Ukraine because Donald Trump told you to? You can just imagine the strong arm that went on in that meeting. So perhaps Biden um, is more active, more effective, tougher than Republicans would have you believe. Well, we'll see what happens. And if we really do have a shutdown, I suspect we won't because it is such bad politics, even for Republicans. Meanwhile, there are further signs that Biden is pretty effective. This week, Sweden officially got voted into NATO. We have added two countries to NATO. This is the organization, of course, that Donald Trump would destroy and has invited Putin to attack. But Biden has expanded it um, as he has um, taken the threat from Putin more seriously than his predecessor, and even perhaps then two presidents before him, because recall that Putin invaded Georgia and uh, Crimea in the two previous administrations. So Biden, once again, being tough. He's now also on the offense of two issues that used to be a sore point with Democrats. First is on crime. On Wednesday, when you will be viewing this, he's inviting a slew of big city police chiefs to the White House, and they're going to talk about the $15 billion he allocated under the American Rescue Plan for things like keeping cops on the payroll, paying for streetlights that help cut down on crime, and of course, mental health interveners who reduce, de-escalate situations with the police. So with the crime rate actually plummeting, something you won't read about very often, and Biden having police chiefs meet with him at the White House, the White House, I think, thinks that this can at least be neutralized and maybe tipped to Trump's to Biden's advantage, rather. After all, isn't Trump responsible for crime? 91 counts? He's his own crime spree. Well, there's another issue that Biden hopes to capitalize on, and that is the border. On Thursday, he is making a trip to the southern border because, after all, he encouraged and approved a tough bipartisan border control bill, which, of course, Donald Trump and the Republicans in the House sunk because they would rather have the issue than have a solution. So I think you're going to see Biden try again to neutralize this issue, which has been a big Republican selling point, uh, and maybe win over some people who say, listen, 
Trump didn't do anything about the border. At least Biden is trying. That's the hope at any rate. And then there's the IVF issue. When Republicans decided that they wanted to eviscerate Roe v. Wade and support things like personhood, meaning life begins and deserves complete protection from the moment of uh, fertilization, they assured us, no, 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 we're not talking about uh, outlawing abortion keeps a case of rape or incest wrong, they are. We're not talking about contraception, wrong, they are. We're not talking about IVF, oh yes, they are. And the decision by a religious fanatical judge in Alabama, essentially outlawing IVF, has raised the hackles of the American people. And you can tell Republicans are in a panic. They are backpedaling as fast as they can possibly do. But you know what? There's no place to run because that's what they are for. They may not want to admit it, but once you say women aren't competent to make their own bodily decisions, they don't get to choose when and how to have kids. Well, then it's all things um, can be regulated by your friendly legislature or your friendly court. It's just you, your doctor, the legislature, and the state Supreme Court. So that's enough to, I think, get the voters riled up. So I think when you put all that together and you have the prospect, God willing, that there may be a ceasefire in Gaza, things are looking pretty well for the president. Now, God bless her, Nikki Haley is staying in there for at least the short term. We'll see how long she lasts. But in the meantime, I think Biden keeps on showing he's effective and keeps on underscoring that Trump is chaos, crazy, division, dissension. And didn't we have enough of that? Weren't we exhausted at the end of the Trump years? So I think that's what Biden has in mind for the rest of the year. I often wrestle with the same problems and the same questions that you do. How can tens of millions of Americans buy into the MAGA madness? Is there any way to solve our democracy shortage, that is the tyranny of the minority? If we could, what constitutional amendments would we pass? Well, there's someone who is absolutely ideal to answer all of those questions. He has observed Washington for decades, wrote multiple books. He is a retired scholar from the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm proud to call him a friend. We have Norm Ornstein to visit us this week and answer some of those troubling questions. Norm, welcome to the program. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Jen. I get a lot of questions from readers, obviously, and I wrestle with some of them. And they usually start out with, am I crazy or has everything else gotten crazy? And I do want to ask you, since you have experience over many decades, is this era completely new, completely out of whack from the reality we've gotten used to? So what I would say is that in well over five decades of being immersed in our politics, having first come to Washington in 1969, I have never seen anything like this, and I think history would bear out that 
in our lifetimes and going back significantly before that. We haven't seen anything like this. And it's true in a couple of ways. One part of it is, uh, having particularly been immersed in Congress over all those years, I've never seen a Congress this embarrassing or dysfunctional. And uh, the competition is stiff on that one. Uh, But the House of Representatives is a complete embarrassing disaster. Uh, And, you know, here we are uh, barreling towards uh, one or more rolling shutdowns uh, with aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan hanging in the balance with multiple uh, issues that are unresolved, and they go away in more uh, recesses than would usually be the case, but they're also just... uh, lying, uh, focusing on ridiculously wrong things, and it's just an utter embarrassment. Then we turn to the broader politics, and, uh, you know, I can't say it's new in, uh, in a couple of ways. We have always had radical, renegade factions in American life. We have had a kind of tribal media in the past, I mean, at one level, you can go back to the uh, broadsheets, uh, even in the colonial era, but certainly Father Coughlin and the radio show in the 1930s was a harbinger of Rush Limbaugh uh, and Fox and, and others. We've had the dark side out there with racism um, and worse. Uh, but with that, We had a leadership in both parties and a broader leadership in the society that kept it all in check and kept it from careening out of control and sent signals to the population, this is wrong. And even where we had uh, a time lag in all of that, President Eisenhower, for example, letting Joe McCarthy run rampant for a long time before he finally stepped in. We had a responsible media and plenty of other responsible actors who kept that from moving to the worst case. We could see two decades and more ago that the Republican Party was changing, that what had been a radical renegade faction was gaining more and more traction. Uh, And Tom Mann and I wrote about this in 2012. We actually sort of highlighted parts of it in in a book in 2006. Uh, I came to it reluctantly because my career had been spent working with a lot of people in both parties. And some of my heroes uh, were Republicans. and it was hard to imagine that it could reach this stage. And even when it was getting really bad, I thought there would be enough of a critical mass of people, staunch conservatives, but institutionalists, but people who believed in the rule of law, in fundamentals, the, the kind of things that should be the foundation of conservatism, would step up to the plate. What's been so stunning to me and what I think is, makes this unique is the complete lack of any moral foundation in one of our two political parties and the handful who have been courageous 
have either been forced out or have opted out. And it is a, a more dangerous, I think, to every part of our freedoms, not just women's reproductive freedom and women's health, but the fundamentals of democracy, of people being put back in concentration camps and being deported in mass numbers, of the complete destruction of our alliances and our place in the world order. And what makes it even more troubling is that huge swaths of the population don't seem troubled by it at all. Exactly. You know, even I, who came to Washington a little bit more more recently than you, I sometimes look back at the Congress of 1980, and the Senate in particular. That was the year our listeners will recall, Ronald Reagan came into office and he swept in a bunch of conservatives, some really conservative people. But compared to the people that we have now, these were giants. These were, you know, founding fathers in comparison. How did we get a quality of leadership that is so low? Was it the infestation of money? Was it the um, rural and um, whitening of the Republican Party. How do we go from that group to the crew we have now? So, you know, there, it's all of the above and more. And I still look back and believe that the pivotal moment came a little bit before that, which was the election before that when Newt Gingrich came into the House. So uh, Tom Mann and I, went to the American Enterprise Institute part-time for both of us in 1978, and we created something called the Congress Project to try and track Congress. And one of my first ideas was to try and recruit members of the class of 78 to come to a, a, a series of small off-the-record dinners, just tracking their first two years in the House. It was actually, a, for a midterm election, a pretty remarkable group of people and the ones we chose who accepted included Dick Cheney, freshman congressman, having been the chief of staff to President Ford, Geraldine Ferraro, who soon moved on, of course, to be uh, the vice presidential nominee, the first woman uh, for Walter Mondale in 1984, and Newt Gingrich, who had run three times, having been a small college history professor before winning but what was stunning is that Newt dominated those discussions by coming in with a full-blown theory and strategy and set of tactics to uh, capture a Republican majority in the House. And his idea was that Republicans had been shut out for what at that point was 24 consecutive years, and he needed to nationalize and radicalize our politics and destroy the reputation of the institution so that people eventually, at the right moment, would say, it's so bad that anything would be better than this. Throw the ins out, bring the outs in. And in the process, he denigrated the institution. He used ethics as a political tool. He uh, tribalized our politics very deliberately. And all of this came along at the same time as tribal media emerged. And it changed the culture. You know, talking about the Senate, there was an interesting book written by a political scientist named Sean Theriot called The Gingrich Senators. Gingrich, who swept in, of course, in 1994, and that was 
40 consecutive years of Democratic rule, and you can't keep Democrats unaccountable here. You know, power does corrupt, and uh, they had grown complacent, corrupt, uh, condescending. Uh, and so a moment of reckoning may have been coming, coming, but Newt recruited people who believed every part of this negative story. And then many of them, they changed the culture of the House, and then many of them moved on to the Senate and changed the culture of the Senate. If you don't mind my going on a little bit, I just want to tell one little anecdote. No, please. Which is uh, Alan Simpson, one of my heroes, uh, yes. after he retired from the Senate, came back a few years later, and was as he entered the Capitol, he encountered Rick Santorum one of those Gingrich senators. And they walked onto the floor of the Senate together. And uh, as soon as they got there, Simpson saw Dale Bumpers, a Democrat from Arkansas, and moved over and they embraced and they were chatting warmly. And then out of the corner of his eye, Al Simpson saw Santorum kind of motioning him back. And he ambled over and he said, what's up? And Santorum said, what's that all about? And Simpson said, that's Dale Bumpers. We came in together. He's almost like a brother of mine. We're very close. And Santorum said to him, we don't do things like that around here anymore. So I had told that story, and I didn't know if it was apocryphal. And then I saw uh, Simpson, and I asked him, and he said it's, it was true. And I said to him, so was he upset because you were hugging a Democrat or because you were hugging a guy? And, <laughs> there you go. And his response was that homophobic son of a bitch, which was classic they, Alan Simpson. But that will tell you absolutely. a lot. As the culture eroded and it was amplified by all of these media, it metastasized from Washington out to states and then to the country as a whole. Our politics became tribalized, and it was no longer you're working with honorable people on the other side who just have ideas that are misguided, but we have to solve these problems, to they're evil, and we need to destroy them because they will destroy our way of life. And that's gotten worse and worse. And then Trump became the uh, amplifier. Um, he didn't start it, but he made it a million times worse. And it, uh, as our culture changed and violence became more acceptable, inch by inch, people became frightened. And as it became a cult, it was first the fear of being excommunicated or shunned, and then the fear of physical violence. And I don't find that an excuse. If you're going to get into public life and you take an oath of office, you do the right thing. And none of them with very, very rare exceptions, are doing the right thing. And if we don't have those safeguards in place, we're in deep trouble. Absolutely. And I compare them to some judges who are being threatened by the Trump mob. People like Alvin Bragg, who has to have 24-7 security. They're not shying away from doing their job because the howling mob is out there. But I think there is this sense for this crowd and for people now who run for office that this is the high point of their life, that the worst thing they could imagine would be getting kicked out of Congress. It's not like you're going to have, you know, 
uh, MTG get hired by a major law firm? Or are you going to have people falling all over themselves to put Mike Johnson on a board of directors? These people would be nothing without their titles. And therefore, I think this really paranoid fear that I might get primary, God forbid, is so driving that they convince themselves they're going to do all manner of thing simply to stay there. And I don't think we had that attitude um, until relatively recently. I think that's exactly right, but I would even add to that. Let's look at people like uh, Lamar Alexander and Rob Portman. Now, here you have two individuals, independently wealthy, who decide to retire. They're going to go back home. There's no primary challenge. There's nothing about, well, if I wanted to become a lobbyist, I'll need clients. So you would expect under those circumstances that maybe they would behave a little bit differently and belly up to the bar and do the right thing. And they didn't in any instance. And why, I, you know, to take Rob, whom I knew when he was in the house and praised him because of his bipartisan work with Ben Cardin there on pension reform and a lot of other things that he did. Rob goes back to Cincinnati He's going to go out uh, and play golf with uh, his buddies and then have lunch in the clubhouse. He's going to go out to dinner with his wife and a few couples and see all of their longtime acquaintances and friends. And the idea that you would be viewed as an apostate by them was just too much. Uh, I find it uh, unacceptable, even contemptible, uh, that you're going to put that ahead of the interests of the nation. But... It's the reality of having a cult right now. And uh, I don't see any way in the foreseeable future that that changes. And when you see a Mike Gallagher in the house who had caved way too many times before to become a chairman, who's a smart, uh, you know, otherwise good legislator in another time would have been a star, superstar, then he says, this is too much. I can't vote to impeach uh, Secretary Mayorkas because there is nothing there. And he gets threatened and says, okay, I'm out of here. And Mitt Romney says, no way, I'm going to stay. Who's left to even provide that lone voice of saying, whoa, you've gone too far? Absolutely. And it becomes this really self-defeating spiral that things get worse and worse and worse. Now, I have always believed that there's nothing like defeat to turn a party around. As you said, Newt Gingrich came in with this whole new scheme because they had been locked out of power for 24 years. Is that what it's going to take to reestablish the Republican Party? Or is it so dead and gone that people who are right of center are going to have to start over someplace else, that you're going to have to have the Liz Cheney slash Adam Kinzinger slash Mitt Romney party out there. So I think we have uh, a couple of big problems in that front. The first big problem is when I look at the next wave, the farm team out there, which means state legislators, city council people, party officials, school boards. What I see is people who make the Freedom Caucus look mild by comparison, by and large. And the incentives 
for people who are traditional conservatives, even extremely conservative, but who believe in rules, norms, uh, and laws, and a constitution and democracy, they have no incentive to run at the moment. So we've got a, a problem that's going to last for a significant period of time. And when you look at some of the actions being taken in states, in Texas, in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Oklahoma, in Missouri, by state legislatures and others, that reinforces it. Uh, the second problem is I've always believed in the rule of three for a party that begins to move out of control or grow renegade, which is you have to lose three elections in a row. And you have to lose the by enough that, you know, the first one you say, oh, how could we have been so stupid as to pick that idiot as our front runner? The second one, it is, oh, we did it again. By the third one, you have to say to yourselves, there's something really wrong here and we've got to reconsider. The problem we have is that the natural cycle in modern times in American politics is that if you lose a presidential election, the odds get pretty strong that you're going to do well in the midterm that follows. And if you do just well enough, you, you win one House of Congress, you hold uh, one House, you can rationalize away your bad behavior and figure out how to make it stick. And so the likelihood of three bad elections in the row for the Republicans is very, very small. And when you add to that the fact that uh, they do even better than their numbers should suggest because of their dominance of smaller states and the Senate and uh, the tilt in the House and the ability to gerrymander in so many states, I'm skeptical that we're going to have three bad elections in a row. Now, if I'm wrong, and God do I hope I'm wrong, and the Republicans lose badly in the presidential election this time, lose the House, and cannot recapture the Senate, and let's face it, the odds of all of that happening are pretty slim, especially when it comes to the Senate. But if that happens, then maybe you're going to get some traction for responsible conservatives and not radical, violence-prone anti-Democrats. It is interesting, your rule of three, because that's, of course, how Bill Clinton yeah. winded his way into the presidency. They had lost three presidential elections, and they correctly diagnosed the problem that they were too far left for America, not perhaps for New York City, but for the country as a whole. And so the Democratic leadership coalition, caucus, whatever they were called, you know, figured this out and they came up with people and a set of ideas and it worked. And they really recaptured um, some centrist ground and were successful. Now, I fear, as you say, Republicans are not so inclined to operate. Now, let's say for sake of argument that all those three things happen. You got the Senate by a narrow margin. Let's not assume that they're going to get huge, huge majorities. You have the House by a decent margin, and you have the White House. Do you break through the filibuster so you can make some structural changes? And if so, what are those changes? 
So uh, there's a slim possibility, if all of that happens, that you actually could change the filibuster. A major reason being, of course, that if that happens, it is going to be in a Senate without Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And you might well have the 50, the critical mass required to make a rules change. Now, I've had my own hobby horse in this, my own idea for uh, a long time, uh, which got some traction among senators, which is that you don't eliminate the filibuster. You instead take it back to where it was supposed to be, which is a rarely used vehicle where the burden is entirely on the minority uh, that feels so strongly about something that they're willing to go to any length to uh, argue their case. The way to do that, it seemed to me, was to flip the numbers from 60 required to end debate to 41 required to continue debate. Then the majority can go round the clock and they're going to have to show up because if at any moment they drop below the 41, then you uh, are able to move forward and act. And let them take some time and dramatize an issue. They're not going to do this the way they have when the margin is 60, where you don't even have to do more than raise your pinky finger to bring everything to a halt. And it means that everything in routine ways goes to 60. Now, you can make other do other things that will streamline matters. You know, the Democrats changed the rule for confirmation for executive appointees and judges below the Supreme Court level. They didn't eliminate the filibuster. They moved the threshold from 60 to 50. There were still multiple ways to take up hours and hours of and days and days of floor time. And Republicans have used this against uh, Biden's uh, executive appointees and against plenty of judges. Uh, you could streamline that much further. The idea that you have 30 hours of post-cloture debate on one individual is ridiculous. There are ways of making it much better. And then, of course, the Republicans blew it up for Supreme Court nominees. Uh, The other way of going is one that has been favored by Senator Jeff Merkley of uh, uh, Oregon. And he and his former chief of staff, uh, Mike Zamor, have written a really good book on the filibuster, and it's to create a version of the talking filibuster, but it's one that has, in effect, a time limit. Everybody can talk. They can talk twice. At the end of that, that's it. You move to vote. I'm agnostic. Either one of those would work. But if they don't do any of those things, Jen, then we know what will happen. 2026 will be a bloodbath just like it was in the first Obama midterm and the second Obama midterm. Things won't happen because Congress will be deadlocked and the public will react against it and you'll have Republican majorities in Congress and they'll be the same crazies and they will say, see, we've solved our problem and it'll get worse. So let's say they adopt either the Merkley plan or the Norm plan. What would you suggest that they do with the filibuster? Would it be to pass kind of ordinary legislation or would it begin to attack some of the anti-democratic mechanisms that have been in place, like 
gerrymandering, like um, the lack of the franchise for the District of Columbia, those sorts of things, in hopes of re-energizing democracy? I'd start with that. And that's what Democrats tried to do this last time. Uh, I would have a sweeping democracy measure, and that would include uh, a national plan for redistricting, uh, creating independent commissions across all states, which they can do for federal elections. It's right there in the Constitution. They have not acted on this, but they could. I would do something that would make barriers to voting uh, reduce dramatically. They've had legislation that would accomplish that goal. I would try and do some fundamental campaign finance reform and restore some of the ability to take away dark money. At least it starts with disclosure, uh, which almost got enacted uh, during Obama's uh, beginning term after Citizen U Citizens United. They got 59 votes in the Senate after it passed handily in the House, but not a single one of the 41 Republicans would support it, which tells you a lot. Uh, and I would also uh, make uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico states. Um, you know, frankly, if it were up to me, I would also make uh, uh, the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, a state, um, uh, uh, maybe even Guam, but at least start with those two. That would be the first thing I would do. The next thing I would do is to provide national protections for women's health and women's reproductive rights. The next thing I would do is to pass common sense gun regulation, and that doesn't have to include... Uh, crazy stuff that uh, the Republicans would like, like abolishing guns, but it would include an assault weapons ban and real limitations on the ability of people to get guns without having uh, a serious uh, approval process. Uh, and I think if you start with those things, and then frankly, I would move on and do some of the things that were not achieved uh, during Obama's first couple of years with the ill-fated elements of the Build Back Better plan that are widely popular, including among Republicans. I would make permanent the child tax credit, which has been the best uh, policy against child poverty ever enacted, including the 1965 War on Poverty. Um, I would uh, create free community college. Um, I would uh, have subsidized child care, which is the best jobs program that we could possibly do. I would robustly fund apprenticeship programs. Uh, you know, there's a long laundry list of things that are necessary and popular. And of course, there will be a need to attack climate change in a different fashion as well. And uh, I think there are a lot of ways in which Congress can go that would make a real difference. And frankly, I would also like to see them pass term limits for Supreme Court justices, which I believe can be done without a constitutional amendment by saying you remain a judge uh, for good behavior, a lifetime, um, but that doesn't mean you have to be on the Supreme Court. We, we can move to an appeals court. We can have a special appeals court of uh, retired Supreme Court justices. Uh, you can take uh, senior status um, uh, and... I think uh, it would be wrong for the Supreme Court 
to, uh, with its own self-interest, to get involved in that fashion. But there's so much that could be done that would improve and protect our democratic political system. And I share your angst, in particular because I'm a lawyer over the Supreme Court. We have never had such a corrupt, such a results-oriented Supreme Court that has really totally frittered away the credibility of an entity, of an institution that for decades, for centuries, held the respect of the American people. And now they're nothing more than, you know, really financial pigs when it comes to certain of them, and the rest just ripping through precedent because that's what they want. And it is absolutely frightening. Do you, if you could get it, would you expand the court to move that process ahead faster, or do you think the way to go is term limits? I'd like to do both. And I really do believe, uh, you know, we've had court packing. It was done by Mitch McConnell and uh, Donald Trump. Um, we need rebalancing. And there's a logic to this. When the court size was set at nine, there were nine circuits along with D.C. Now there are 13. So a, one justice per circuit makes logical sense. If we had 13 justices, we would rebalance the court that would more accurately reflect what is supposed to happen. Voters select presidents and congresses, and you're not choosing justices who, uh, are, who have a political viewpoint that reflects that, but you're creating a court that reflects the broader society. And what we have now is a court that reflects a narrow, radical segment of the society, and that's wrong. Uh, and, you know, I think it's time to really think about changing it. And I, you know, going back to what you said, just circling back, one of the, th the other uh, high priorities I would place on a government that could actually act is a robust, enforceable code of conduct for the Supreme Court. I will tell you, my idea on that front is to create something akin to the House Office of Congressional Ethics. This should not be policed by other judges. And what we've seen when you're supposedly having the judicial conference that takes care of its own is a failure, which is similar to the failure we've seen with congressional ethics. And it's a failure similar to what we've seen with medicine. Look at the quack rogue Surgeon General in Florida who now is basically uh, accelerating a measles epidemic that's likely to result in uh, mayhem, uh, where's the medical profession? It's nowhere. And the legal profession has been so slow to act with the miscreants of uh, judges, uh, excuse me, of lawyers like Rudy Giuliani and many others uh, taking all these years. Bill Barr still never uh, even considered on that front create an office of judicial ethics that consists of former judges, of others uh, in the legal profession, and even outside the legal profession. Have Michael Ludig as the chair and have genuine penalties for judges and justices who violate ethical standards and, as in the case of Clarence Thomas, have violated the law.
And here we also have to call into account Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. Merrick is one of the finest human beings I know. He is a friend. I love the guy. But how can you let Clarence Thomas get off without any action by the Justice Department when he has lied about his financial disclosure forms? It's a violation of law. If you truly believe that no one is above the law, you have to act that way. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the downsides of selecting a judge who thinks he is so above politics that he avoids political conflict, which itself is a form of politicization of the courts. Let me move to a broader concern that I have. Um, Many of us, many Jewish Americans, never thought that fascism would come to America. But that is the only word that adequately, in my mind, describes the MAGA movement. And when I look at those grainy films of the Nazi rallies in Germany in the 1930s, all really just enthralled with Hitler in an emotional tumult, I cannot but see its echo here in the United States. And where I'm going with this is how do we de-radicalize not the politicians, but the people? How do we recapture tens of millions of people who have bought into this ideology that is inhumane, indecent, un-American? How do we get them back? That's a uh, an enormous challenge. And, you know, as another Jewish American, it all makes me very nervous because rank anti-Semitism is not in the closet. It's right out in the open. And we have lost every bit of our sense of shame, of the ability to, you know, if you call people racist now, something that used to be an epithet that nobody wanted to have attached to them. Now people say, yeah, and I'm proud of it, or they shrug it off. And the same if you call people anti-Semitic. You know, I I was really struck uh, by a a little uh, skit that Jimmy Kimmel did on his show uh, last week, which was he sent out one of his people to talk to uh, Trump voters. And uh, the idea was that they were going to be told things that Joe Biden did that actually Donald Trump had done. So, for example, it was, so did you know that Joe Biden had an affair with a porn star? and then paid her hush money to keep her quiet. And the voters would say, that's disgusting. He is inhumane. He doesn't deserve to be in any office. And then uh, the Kimmel person would say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I got it mixed up. That's what Donald Trump did. And the response was something like, well, you know, everybody's human. My father had affairs (laughs) and, you know, it's no big deal. I still love him. And he's... And, you know, you you realize that this is what a cult brings about. And if Lenny Riefenstahl were back today, she'd be doing films about Donald Trump that were the equivalent of Triumph of the Will. Now, the good news is, as we see uh, voters in South Carolina, 40% of them, more than 40%, uh, 41.2%, saying, Republican voters saying, Donald Trump's not my guy. 
And we're seeing substantial numbers in other places. Clearly, some Republicans are uneasy about this. Now, would they then gravitate behind somebody else carrying on the same pitch? A lot of them would. And what's so disturbing about this to me is they're not, you know, Hitler, back in the day, before the election that brought him to power, said all kinds of things that reflected where he was going. And they were treated as, look, this is just, that's not really him. He's just saying this shit. Don't worry, he'll fit in. But he also tried to reassure the business community and others that, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be outside the norm. Donald Trump and the people around him, the people at CPAC this past week, the people who are running the Heritage 2025 project hand in glove with the Trump people, Trump himself, his closest advisors, uh, Steve Bannon uh, and uh, uh, all the others, uh, are basically telling us where they're going to go. They're saying, we're going to blow up democracy. We're going to create concentration camps. We're going to round up millions of illegals and deport them en masse. We are going to fire the critical mass in the federal government and fill it with flunkies who will do anything Donald Trump wants them to do. And all of that is out there. And what are we seeing? One, we're seeing that lots of voters, if they know about it, shrug it off because they're not unhappy at that prospect. And what we're also seeing is the rank failure of our mainstream media to take this seriously. And you know, because I've ranted about this before, Donald Trump says, uh, first of all, he either doesn't know or he lies about what NATO is. And he says, they're not paying their fair share, our allies, and I'm going to go to Russia and say, never mind NATO, you go ahead and invade the NATO countries. Now, that is beyond shocking. And it's true. Treasonous, treasonous, actually, because NATO, of course, is your attack on one is an attack on all. So he's inviting people to attack, in essence, the United yes. States. And uh, he would blow up every alliance. He's basically made it pretty clear to China that Taiwan can go. And uh, he's not going to uh, shrug about that. But he says that. And there's no front page story in The Washington Post or The New York Times for the next day. All right, I give him an excuse. After all, you fill the front page uh, early on in the night before. Maybe it was all dropped. The, top, the post puts it at the bottom of the front page the next day, the Sunday paper. And you know, as anybody who follows journalism at all knows, is that it's not just what's on the front page, it's where it is. If it's not above the front page, above the fold, and in big block letters, it's not a big story. You're signaling to people, eh, shrug, not really a huge thing. That was not followed by other responses, including the implications of this. And it becomes a one-day story, and then it goes right by people. So voters who ought to be alarmed by what Donald Trump would bring, don't have any clue about any of this. 
And the press reaction to Trump is, well, he said all that stuff before. It's a good show. And they do not take him seriously. They normalize the abnormal. And that's another part of our challenge. You cannot get past the uh, cult of personality without having a regular drumbeat. And it's not bias. It's uh, tilting against a bias in the other direction. It's pointing out the reality of the threat we face. And we're not seeing that happen. And that is as disturbing to me as almost anything else. Well, Norm, as you know, since you are a wonderfully loyal reader, um, I rant about that constantly. And, oh, I know. Um, you know <laughs> and it is greatly disturbing because this pose of neutrality is false. These things are not equally balanced um, by posing as neutral. Well, Trump's a fascist, but Biden is old. You're, equi- you're making these things that are not equivalent equivalent. And you're, as you say, normalizing Trump. Let me close out our time um, with a very big question. Are you in the long term still optimistic about the democratic project? Or do you think, frankly, it's run its course? I wish I could say I were optimistic. Um, I still think we have a pathway out of this. Uh, I think it has to start with uh, reelecting Joe Biden. And if it is not reelecting Joe Biden, um, I think we're headed in a, a, a downward spiral. I would say if it's Donald Trump, we immediately head into the abyss. Uh, if it's any other Republican who could win that nomination, it won't be perhaps as bad, but it will be very, very bad. And it will include pursuing an agenda that would undermine democracy, uh, would undermine the right to vote, that would uh, divide uh, the country even further, and would lead us perhaps inexorably uh, towards the end of the democratic experiment. If Biden wins, it's going to be a big struggle, particularly because it's still more likely than not it would be a Republican Senate. I will say, you know, I've just seen a couple of, uh, of references to this possibility that uh, we have to take seriously, which is, let's say Democrats win the House and by a narrow margin, uh, and uh, Biden wins, but not by a substantial amount. It is at least theoretically possible that Mike Johnson, presiding over the House, even though uh, it's after January 3rd and the new House is convening, could, as he's there to swear in the new members, deny the ability of a handful of Democrats to get sworn in, saying the elections were uh, questionable, and then use January 6th to uh, basically contest electoral votes and have the election sent to the House where they vote by state and where it's more likely than not, even if Democrats are going to win a majority, that Republicans will have 26 votes to install Donald Trump uh, as president. That is not technically illegal, uh, but we have to face the possibility that we could have a coup here, um, even if 
the election results come out the way we want and expect. And we have to make sure that people are aware of this so that uh, other institutions, including the president uh, and the presidency, would intervene. If something like that happened, I would hope that Joe Biden, still president, of course, until January 20th, would take action uh, and make sure we did not have uh, a coup similar to what we have seen in way too many countries. Uh, Now, I think if Biden wins, we're going to struggle. We're going to have real difficulty implementing good policies, but we will be able to prevent the worst from happening. We will have a chance to, uh, you know, do what happens whenever your computer goes awry and uh, reboot, um, and to have a chance to rethink what the values are in this country. That's my hope, but I'm realistic. Uh, I can't say I'm optimistic. I'm perhaps more pessimistic, but mostly I'm realistic. And if we don't confront directly the challenges that we're facing to every fundamental of our life, and that includes, you know, I'll end with this, something we've talked about. The 2025 project, what we saw with the Alabama Supreme Court, What we know is true of the religious fundamentalists who are now driving forces in the Republican Party is that taking away uh, choice in abortion is one step down a path, and IVF is the second step. Next comes contraception, and that's followed by outlawing not just gay marriage, but criminalizing gay sex again. It's about taking us to a place where even the handmaid's tale would have considered extreme. And if people are not aware of those problems, you know, simply avoiding that would be a very positive step forward, which we would have if there were a a second Biden term. But make no mistake about it, we would be headed towards a dystopia that goes beyond even just a a simple authoritarian government. Well, Norm, As I fully expected, this was a fascinating conversation, (laughs) depressing, but fascinating. Um, And uh, I would commend all of your work um, to our listeners. Um, You can find his uh, daily, weekly work and his books. Um, Look at his um, website at the uh, Brookings Institute, at the, uh, excuse me, at AEI. Um, And I... Norm, thank you for what you do. Thank you for being my political science professor for many years um, and for coming on our show. And we're going to have you back as we struggle along. And hopefully we will reach the right result in November. Jen, I am just happy uh, to be uh, in the same foxhole as you and all of this. And you uh, have been uh, doing your part uh, and more than your part to keep us uh, from heading into that abyss. Many thanks. Thank you again, Norm. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Norm Ornstein. He did not disappoint. Lots of ideas, and I think a reminder that we can't be passive. We have our votes, we have our voices, we have our networks. We can push for the kinds of reforms that will improve the system. Yes, we need to rid the country of the MAGA movement, which is a cancer on our democracy. But we also need to do more. We also need to win back the hearts and minds of some of those still persuadable Americans 
We need to make structural changes. We need to make sure that the modern electorate, which is more diverse, frankly, more progressive, has control of this country and not an artificial slice of it that white Christian Republicans want to regulate and control our lives from. So it's a good reminder. It's uh, a sobering view that if we do nothing, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. But you can do something. So remember to vote. Remember to take action every single day. Do something for democracy. And we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this program, you enjoy our other programs, please tell your friends. They can follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.